0: Well, good morning. Welcome back to the Broadcast for Retirement Network. I'm Jeff Snyder. This is BRN Weekly for Saturday, September 10th, 20. 22 it's been another great week of great topics and of course great guests we kicked off the week with a look at whether the housing market is cooling. let's take a look
1: not collapsing let's start there uh softening absolutely softening uh so we're starting to see maybe a we're definitely seeing a deceleration in home prices which is understandable we've had this incredible you know decade plus run up in home prices we're starting to see a little softness there. I mean, it started really at the beginning of the summer with uh, as, as interest rates rose, interest in, people's interest in the market sort of fell off a little bit. But I don't think that this is really going to be a, you know, a collapse. It, this is definitely a softening and a deceleration overall of interest in uh, in in home sales. Yeah, no, it's absolutely market specific. Yeah. So uh, it wasn't Des Moines. It was Boise. So a lot of people. Sorry,
0: uh, (laughs) Sorry, Boise.
1: Sorry, Boise. Even before the pandemic, a lot of people were interested in Boise. And during the pandemic, a lot of people moved to Boise because uh, they wanted to get away from from some of the coastal areas on the West Coast. Boise has uh, the, the tide has turned in Boise in terms of People moving in there, and so prices and it and interest. That market has fallen dramatically, and I think you're starting to see a little bit of that in um, in Phoenix, a little bit of that in Las Vegas, a little bit of that in Austin, Texas. These are all the markets that got really, really, really inflated, sort of over the last couple of years. So it's not it's not a crash, but it, it starts to be a little bit of a normalizing. Overall, yes. So uh, I was looking at some Realtor.com data from, from July. Uh, rent prices have gone up for 17 months in a row now. So so there was that brief dip during the start of the pandemic and that and then that pretty much ended. Yeah, rents, rents are still going up. They are stabilizing a bit in some markets. But the other thing that I'm starting to think about, too, is what costs are those landlords facing? And one of the big ones is starting to be the energy costs this winter. And I think that is going to put additional pressure on landlords. So even if even as the market sort of starts to be a, maybe a little calmer and they don't want to raise rates as much, they also are dealing with higher costs. So it, it's, it's something I'm going to be watching. Industrial is still strong, even though Amazon has said they're they're you know uh, delaying some projects. It's still. We still need places to store things. Uh, same thing for self-storage. Big question mark. I, I think I talk about this every time. It's still office. We still haven't figured out where we land as as a country on on hybrid work, remote work, how that's all gonna play out. You've got companies like Apple saying, okay, you have to be in the office certain days. Maybe that takes off. There's something interesting thing ha- An interesting thing happening with hybrid work where I think that. As people go to the office more, they end up wanting to go more days. And I think that's a phenomenon I'm watching. That's making me feel a little more optimistic about office real estate. But that is still, that is still the area that is definitely the, the one to watch.
0: Next up, we discussed single stock ETFs. What are they? Let's take a look.
2: Um, yeah, so these the single stock ETF products are really interesting. You know, they're they're levered versions of a single stock. So, for example, um, Tesla is one of the more popular ones. So you have a bull and bear Tesla single stock ETF. On the bull side, you get 1.5 times exposure to the daily movement of Tesla. So. For investors who are, you know, super bullish on Tesla and they think that the stock is going to sort of trend upward, um, you know, compounding and that extra leverage will will benefit in their favor. So you're essentially adding some juice to your your exposure and your investment in Tesla over time. Um, so my thoughts on this um, are that I think it's I think it's great and I think it's a great way to evolve the future of ETFs. So you know, for, for years, we sort of have relied on the 1940 Act fund, and it works great for for your classic indices, but for different types of themes, um, you know, kind of like pick one, whether it's cannabis, or whether it's, um, autonomous vehicles, or, um, you know, sort of anything, right, psychedelics, 5G, whatever it is, there are rules, you know, in terms of how how many names an ETF has to hold and and diversification rules and things like that. So, you know, there aren't enough, for example, pure EV companies to just create an ETF that has only EV companies. So if you look at some of the popular ones out there, they have Tesla, they have Rivian, you know, they have Ford, which arguably you know, doesn't generate most of their money from EV, they have Nvidia and Honeywell in there, which, you know, contribute to the build out of these products, but that's not really what people are looking for exposure to. So when you think about a product that has, you know, a couple of names or a single stock name that is just leveraged to a theme, I think it's super attractive for for traders and, and retail investors, because you're actually getting pure thematic exposure to the exact stock that you want exposure to, or the few stocks that you want exposure to and not necessarily you know the whole general universe that's related to it so i think they're going to be a great complement to thematic investing yeah for sure i i think you know you bring up a good point so so the number one issue i think is concentration risk right i i think that you know the etf issuer is assuming that you're not only buying that one etf and that's you know your entire portfolio but uh, the benefit of having a diversified basket of a couple of names, or you know, the classic ETF that I mentioned before, that might have some of these other names, is that you reduce your concentration risk. So if if one name, you know, if, if Elon Musk comes out and says, "I, I hate Teslas now," you know, and the stock comes crashing down, you're in a lot of trouble. You're in a lot of trouble if you have the bull fund, right? Um, And there's sort of nothing else to buffer that. So concentration risk is number one. Number two is just understanding Levered inverse ETF products. So I spent over a decade at a Levered inverse ETF uh, product shop. I know them super well. So trend is your friend. If the market is trending in either direction, whether you're a bull or a bear, you're going to benefit because compounding will essentially work in your favor as the ETF rebalances and increases exposure or reduces exposure to a particular index directionally. Where you get into trouble with these is if you have a market like we have now where you have range bound volatility meaning you know Tesla's up 5% one day down 5% the next day up 5 down 5 that tends to lead to decay and even if at the end of the month let's say Tesla's up 10% but every day in between it's kind of you know, hinged up and down two to 3% ranges, you're likely to underperform 1.5 what Tesla did, you could be negative, you could be positive, And that's the real risk. So compounding in range bound volatile markets tends to lead to investment decay. So, um, you know, sort of proceed with caution and just understand that, You know, you need to sort of have a conviction on two things: one, that the single stock is going to, you know, move upward or downward, and number two, that you expect volatility to be sort of relatively stable, and that you expect a trend um, to also occur during that time period. You know, otherwise, it's a little bit risky.
0: Well, we're halfway through our best segment of the week. When we come back, the other half of our best segments, you're going to want to stay tuned right here on BRN weekly. Welcome to the next frontier of retirement and savings. This is BRN, the Broadcast Retirement Network. Welcome back. Next up, we discussed how inflation is affecting discretionary spending, but not retirement preparedness. Let's take a look. Sure.
3: You know, so this is uh, Life Insurance Awareness Month, as you mentioned already. Uh, this is the one time a year the industry comes together and really tries to tighten its focus around the importance of life insurance and protecting those that you love. Um, And uh, so as part of our our effort to participate in increasing that awareness, uh, we conduct our our own survey. And much like uh, the rest of America, uh, inflation is top of mind for for most folks. Uh, It's also impacting the way um, people are uh, spending So specifically, uh, it's affecting uh, discretionary spending. What we're not seeing, though, is that um, it's really having a material impact on spending around retirement planning, around life insurance, and even cybersecurity, those things that protect our identity as we are uh, operating more frequently on online. When we look across both our military and our civilian uh, connected, our, our civilian and military connected families, Uh, 50-plus percent uh, have have made spending cuts, but again, 20%, less than 20% of that same population are making cuts to to those things that are important uh, as it relates to protecting the things that are important to them, their family, their identity, their retirements. Uh, When you look across um, uh, the military-connected families and civilians, um, the majority, so 59-plus percent of civilians Seventy plus percent of military families are worried that inflation will cut into uh, their res- their retirement and their and their life insurance plan. Yeah, I I, I certainly um, I certainly believe in the industry surveys and industry results suggest and support uh, this view. Right, the the pandemic in general uh, really heightened the awareness of life insurance. Uh, it helped uh, many folks sort of. Reckon with their own mortality, if you will, mm-hmm. and really underscored the importance of making sure that you're prepared for the unexpected. Uh, and life insurance is certainly a, a key tool in, in that effort.
0: What about household debt? Is there any difference? Um, you know, obviously, we've come through the pandemic, some concerns about jobs, concerned about inflation. How about managing household debts? How did, i want to call them civvies. How did civvies do versus the military? connected families. And hopefully i'm not offending anybody
3: sure well uh we're proud because we serve um military service members here at usaa and, and we are very proud of the fact that when we look at the uh military connected respondents to our our survey that we're discussing today more than 25 percent of the military uh, uh respondents were were more prepared and had sufficient Uh, or or, um, adequate coverage uh, for debts and felt that they could replace five years of of income. By contrast, if you're just looking at it statistically, 53% of those respondents being our military connected individuals uh, were prepared uh, versus roughly 39, 40% of of the civilians. No, no question. Right. Um, Again, I'll just go back to. you 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 can't always plan for the unexpected but you can plan and that might be your own mortality that might be for uh the loss of income that might be for the loss of uh retirement benefits health benefits and i think the pandemic has forced people to think differently about how prepared they are for these type of incidentals and unexpected events that happen from time to time yeah i I couldn't agree more right if you think about the pandemic uh, when it first emerged in the United States, you think about the impact it's had on uh, our own mortality, our own longevity. You think about the number of lives that were directly impacted by the pandemic in terms of uh, the, the, the death, uh, the number of deaths that we had across the United States. You don't have to reach too far to uh, know someone that was impacted in some way by this pandemic. And again, I think that has forced this uh, reckoning, if you will. Uh, With our own vulnerability and our own uh, mortality.
0: And finally, we discussed how ESG and sustainability is impacting investing decisions in real estate. Let's take a look.
5: Sure. So I think the best way to approach this question is just to give you a little bit of a background on our process. So I'll start with development. At PGM Real Estate, we typically don't develop assets on our own, we work with best in class, you know, regional. Um, and national developers when we are working on development projects. So part of our analysis on whether or not to move forward with the deal includes a thorough ESG risk and opportunity review, and um, which is then also presented to our investment committee. And we work with our development partners to seek green building certifications. Um, We uh, include more sustainable features such as on-site renewable energy, uh, energy efficient building systems, and then we try and future-proof our assets to include things like uh, EV charging stations and then more EV uh, charging infrastructure as needed down the line. So that's really what we do on uh, the development side. In terms of operation of an existing asset, we are continually continually looking to improve our portfolio on an annual basis and we do that through the budget process. So we collect property level emissions data uh, for the majority of the assets that we own and we use that information to help identify top candidates for energy audits and then we use that audit information to determine where we're going to invest in terms of uh, capital improvements. Um, And so we require all of our assets to go through an energy audit um, at least every year, but we're typically doing so more often. Um, And so I'll give you the example for this year. Uh, We did a large audit with uh, all of our self-storage properties in the fund. So we're auditing nearly 100 self-storage facilities in collaboration with our operating partner, which is Extra Space. And we're making all of the low cost recommended audit actions this year. And then we budgeted and we are in the process of putting that in the budget for 2023 to make all of the higher cost measures next year.
4: Yeah, that's a great question. how you incorporate sustainability is easier on some properties, and, and some of that comes down to control. Uh, an office property would typically be the easiest because you have tenant leases that you can negotiate. A lot of ESG, we have green leases. We're we're on our third version of of green leases with tenants. Uh, it's it's harder with industrial tenants and retail tenants because they pick space for other factors for more location-driven or where it fits in a supply chain uh, than an office tenant might. And uh, if we go back to when we started our policy in 2006, we started it with just office properties and it was very basic of uh, green cleaning, uh, recycling, uh, pursuing Energy Star and and LEED certifications. I mean, it was that simplistic back in 2006. It's gotten a lot more complicated. Um, Grez batted a lot when it became prevalent about uh, a decade ago and that put a lot of uh, measurement uh, into the equation uh, and that morphed into a focus on social and resilience and, and everything's added on into your sustainability policy. And and now that with transition risk and physical risk and social all added that the data collection has gone way up. So I think a, a big part of our practice is is getting the data and getting data of properties where, you know, the bills may be in the tenant's name, not your name, it's, it's far more difficult to get that and, and implement improvements. Uh, so it does matter. And I, like I said, is the more control you have, I, the easier it is to implement what you need to do. Well, I think a lot of it starts with the, the first interaction with a lot of clients may be an RFP that you get. And I would say now the two most prevalent questions are, how are we incorporating climate risk? or uh, climate change into our investment process. That That's probably how it starts out. And you need to have a, a great answer for that. And we fully integrated at UBS here, uh, kind of a, a TCFD. I, I guess I lose, I'm the first one to use an acronym, the uh, Task Force <laughs> on <laughs> okay. uh, Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, which you know, that's one of the problems with uh, Sustainability nowadays is the amount of acronyms continues to grow. But it's basically a a new risk framework that includes physical risk, which is how you're incorporating uh, physical factors such as global warming, sea level rise, increased flooding in your investment process, and transition risk, which is the risks associated with moving to a lower carbon environment. Uh, So a lot of the questions aren't quite that sophisticated yet. They're more of The general climate change question but yeah clients are really caring uh both prospective clients and new clients and i would say at this point most of the social questions aren't asked as much about uh, the property level investments but what we're doing as a company and it's more what is ubs's senior leadership breakdown of diversity not you know what's the diversity of our property managers and and partners per se. Uh, but one thing we did start doing two years ago is we do track the diversity of all of our vendors at the property level. Uh, at this point, mostly to make sure we have the data and know that we're acting in a responsible manner and we're adding that into the equation for capital approvals.
5: Sure, absolutely. Investors are very focused on the E and ESG. And also, increasingly, we are getting more and more questions about the S, and that tends to present itself um, in terms of DEI, what we're doing here at PGM Real Estate, and also health and wellness at our assets. And so, Jeff, I asked um, my PGM Real Estate team to pull some data because we collect a lot of data. So I just thought I would share, um, you know, We've seen a dramatic increase in investor focus on ESG. And so our uh, ESG related questions have increased by 345% in 2020. And also 70% of all investor DDQs that we uh, get now that we respond to have ESG related questions. So we fully expect that number to continue to rise annually but there is uh, much more of a focus on a a year-over-year basis. We view certifications as as an essential tool to drive better building performance. And also we value um, the third-party validation of our ESG investment. So green certifications, LEED, BREEAM, and quite frankly, others do very much matter to us. And if a building doesn't immediately have um, a green certification, what we do here is we conduct a gap analysis to determine what investments uh, into the property we need to make to get the asset certified. But the simple answer to your question, Jeff, is yes, certifications do matter. And those assets that are certified ultimately um, are looked at
4: more favorably. A great third party uh, verification of what you're doing. The other part of this is it really helps engage your property teams to make sure that you are running your investment really as, as well as you can for your clients. And we found that having the property teams go through the certification dramatically increases their engagement and alignment with our ESG
0: strategies. Well, certainly great segments. I want to thank all of our great contributors this week. And that wraps up this episode of BRN Weekly. Have a topic of interest, somebody you think we should talk to, drop us a line. And don't forget, for all the latest curated news and lifestyle, wellness, finance, entertainment, tech, so much more in all in one place, check out today's edition of our daily newsletter, The Morning Pulse. Want to search our archives, check out our latest content? Well, visit our website, and, of course, our changing partners. We're back again tomorrow for BRN Sunday. I'll be joined by members of the media, government, financial services, academia, and many others as we analyze all the news and events for the week. Until then, I'm Jeff Snyder. Stay safe, keep on saving, and don't forget, roll with the changes.
6: Are you being audited, and do you owe the IRS $10,000 or more in back taxes? Is the IRS threatening to take more of your money? Don't fight the IRS alone. The tax doctor is here to help you negotiate your tax bill and reduce your stress. The IRS can freeze your assets and seize your bank accounts, but you can stop these IRS actions. The tax doctor will work with you using our years of experience to represent your case to help you get the best resolution under the IRS guidelines. Help is here to deal with the IRS to reduce your stress. We've handled thousands of cases, so we know what we're doing. If you owe $10,000 or more in back taxes, do not call the IRS alone. Call a tax doctor now for a tax emergency analysis.
4: Call 800